A year after the blast in the port of Beirut, Lebanon sinks into a severe economic crisis. Electricity, gas, and even medicine are in short supply in the country. Angry residents wait in line for hours to fill their car tanks while others lucky enough to be able to connect to the internet run online campaigns asking Lebanese expats visiting the country for the summer to bring with them the much-needed medicines for loved ones. How did the blast from the Beirut port exacerbate the current economic and political crisis in the country? And what's life today for millions of Lebanese people and for the victims of the port blast and their families? Mira Nabulsi put these questions to Lara Bittar, the editor-in-chief of The Public Source, a Beirut-based independent media organization dedicated to long-form and in-depth journalism in the public interest. Life in Beirut and Lebanon in general right now is nothing short of a nightmare or hell. Uh, the Lebanese president had warned uh, during a press conference about a year or so ago uh, in response to a journalist uh, who had asked the Lebanese president, where do you think the country is heading? And he just point blank said to her, the country is heading towards hell. And I think this is what we're living through. The economic crisis has impacted everything in the way we live, the education sector, public health, transportation. There's a very severe fuel crisis because we don't have public transportation. It's made life very difficult. It's made it virtually impossible for people to get to their workplaces, to go buy food, get basic necessities. In addition to the currency that's been devalued by almost 90%, people's salaries have been slashed by half, if not more. Unemployment is skyrocketing, inflation as well. Just kind of to put some things into perspective, the Lebanese lira was pegged to the dollar at a rate of 1500 to a dollar over the past 30 or so years since the end of the civil war or the beginning of the 1990s. The Lebanese lira on the black market rate today is close to 20,000. If you used to pay for something a dollar, now you're paying 10, 15, or 20 dollars for the same item. And obviously, salaries have not increased. To the contrary, salaries have decreased. Add to that a global pandemic, and then also add to that a massive explosion that took place at the port of Beirut on August 4, one of the largest non-nuclear explosions in the history of mankind that we still obviously have not recovered from. So all of that together has made the situation here, has made life here really unbearable, unlivable. I'm going to exactly expand on that area, which is the impact the blast had. Like you were saying, Lebanon was already facing an economic meltdown and an inflation even before the port blast. But how did it exacerbate the economic crisis? I'm going to take you a step first before we talk about the explosion. On October 17, 2019, there was a large uprising, a mass uprising that took place and that continued for several months. At the time, this was at the very beginning of the economic crisis. The currency was already fluctuating a little bit, nothing in comparison to what we're seeing today. But on October 17, large numbers of people, students from all over the country, these were protests that were countrywide, with a simple demand 
to transition towards an independent government with legislative powers. An independent government that would be able to kind of navigate us out of this crisis to a certain extent. A government that would be able to make the appropriate decisions, to enact laws, and so on, and to, at the very least, have a capital control law that would have reduced the flight of capital that happened in the first few months after the crisis began. At the time, during these mass demonstrations, a lot of people felt very hopeful. A lot of young people in particular who were living in the diaspora were coming back to Lebanon just to be able to participate in these demonstrations. That was the first time in a very long time that people felt that there was some kind of hope, that there was a possibility to have some kind of change in this country. Granted, it might not have been this radical change and a complete overhaul of the system, the sectarian system that exists in Lebanon. But at the very least, people felt empowered and felt that there was a possibility to do something. Now, when the COVID pandemic started, the first lockdown on March 15, 2021, and then the blast on August 4 last year, people's hopes were completely dashed. And the August 4 blast was what broke everything. People felt completely hopeless. And that was the moment in which a lot of people started thinking not of how they could change their country, but how they could flee the country. And this is what we're seeing today. People are no longer invested in this country. Their only hope is trying to escape what is really a nightmare of a situation. The reverberations of the blast are still felt every day. For a lot of people who survived the blast on August 4, they felt like if something like this of this magnitude can happen and no one is held to account and there are absolutely no repercussions, then no one knows what could happen. And as a matter of fact, since August 4 up until today, there's been several other explosions, regular fires, just a vast array of different types of violence that we are subjected to on an almost daily basis, not to mention the daily humiliations, the daily indignities of having to hunt for gas, having to hunt for gasoline, most recently shortages in water. Obviously, tap water is not something that we can drink, so we buy bottled water. There are shortages now even in bottled water. And obviously, the reconstruction efforts, which haven't really begun. We don't have a lot of figures because the government is not very interested in a fair and just recovery process, but a large majority of people are still displaced. On August 4, up to 300 people were rendered homeless just on that day. Over 250 people lost their lives. Somewhere between six to eight to 9,000 people were injured, at least 1,000 or 1,200 of those were rendered disabled. And so on the public source of which I'm the editor-in-chief, we put out a special issue for August 4th to commemorate the one-year anniversary mm -hmm. and to try to talk about all of these issues that people are still facing one year onto the blast. And we noticed, granted, there are a lot of things that we picked up on as we were conducting some of these investigations, when it comes to the reconstruction process, when it comes to people with disabilities, when it comes to the impact that the blast has had on the most vulnerable communities in Lebanon, including migrant worker communities. The state is completely absent, is nowhere to be seen. Lebanon, for a very long time, has been a country that's run kind of by NGOs. 
And this is what happened in the aftermath of August 4. Had it not been for NGOs and civil society organizations, a lot of people would not have received any kind of support, any kind mm-hmm. of aid, whether it's people who were injured or people who had lost their homes. So the repercussions of the blast are still felt every single day by people who are still living with their injuries, with their disabilities, people who are still without homes, people who have lost their businesses and their jobs, their livelihoods. And there's really absolutely nobody that's taking care of them on a consistent basis. I wanted you to take us back to August 4th, exactly one year anniversary of the blast in the port, and tell us more about how people commemorated that day. Just maybe paint a picture of what the streets look like and what were some of the demands? What did you hear and see on that day? The one-year commemoration was very similar or somewhat similar to the demonstration that took place on August 8th, so a few days after the blast in 2020. People were furious. On August 8, 2020, people marched down to the street. They were calling for the execution of people who were responsible for the blast. People on that day, it felt like they just have had enough, that they were not able to tolerate or bear one more hardship, one more calamity, one more catastrophe in a country that's regularly enduring all of these things. And similarly, on the one-year anniversary or on the commemoration of the first year, there was that same level of anger, but the numbers had diminished. And as I was saying before, and that's because on one hand, people are hopeless, but on the other, because you get so boggled down with trying to meet the basic necessities and trying to meet the basic needs of your children, your family, uh, your elderly parents, people don't have the same capacity to organize, to be on the street. When you're spending your day just hustling all day long, trying to secure a little bit of electricity, a little bit of gas, some medicine for for a family member who might be ill, that really reduces your ability to face and to confront the state and to be in constant confrontation with the state. Nonetheless, there were tens of thousands of people on August 4, and the demand was the same for the resignation of this political class and for the formation of a government that's truly independent, that has no ties with any of the current political parties. And it should be noted that the political parties and most of the major figures that rule this country today are the same ones who fought during the Civil War that started in 1975, ended in 1990. These former warlords are the same people who are ruling the country today and they have interests in almost everything in the country. They're not just political actors, obviously. They have a hand in businesses. They control the port. They control the airport. They control what's coming in and out. And it's this very close relationship that has allowed them to maintain power over the past 30 years by developing these sectarian clientelist networks that voters eventually have to rely on. And it's just this never-ending loop 
where they provide their supporters or loyalists to their political parties with meager benefits in order for them to maintain their grip on power. So to hone in a little bit, actually, on the explosion in the port and what happened since. So soon after the blast, the official narrative, or let's say the widely reported narrative, said that the ship was heading to Mozambique and that it stopped in Beirut to load seismic equipment that was supposed to be delivered to Jordan. The government did call for an investigation since. Where is that at? And do people buy this narrative of the government? No, absolutely not. Not to oversimplify things, but the vast majority of people don't buy anything that comes out of the government, any kind of official statement. On the day of the blast, the interior minister came out and promised that there would be a thorough investigation, the results of which would be released within five days. Over a year later, we have not learned anything about this investigation. There's been a few changes of investigative judges. The former one was kind of pushed out. Now there's a new investigative judge that the families of the victims are putting a lot of hope in. And he's been trying to lift the immunity of certain political figures for him to be able to investigate. Do people feel like the judiciary is a little bit more independent in Lebanon? The judiciary is absolutely not independent. It is as corrupt as uh, the political parties that control the judiciary. Nonetheless, there are some people who have a little bit of hope because the new investigative judge is trying to push for an investigation with Mm. the top dogs as opposed to people who are just workers at the court and obviously have no involvement. All of the political figures who have been called into an investigation have refused to appear. Most recently, the caretaker prime minister, Hassan Adyab, has refused to appear for an investigation, and so have all of the other ministers and government officials who have been called. The FBI conducted an investigation, so has the French government, but we don't know much of what was revealed, with the exception of a few small, not very significant details. But the question of who exactly brought the ship, why had it been stored for so many years, Why was no one responding to these letters that were raising the issue and saying that this is potentially very dangerous to leave this material, especially the way it was stored as well? So there were a lot of missteps along the way. And a year into the blast, we don't really have any concrete answers. There are a lot of conspiracy theories. There are a lot of people who have different ideas of what could have possibly went down, but we don't know anything concretely. Mm-hmm. Do we even know or have an idea today on what might have triggered the explosion? We obviously know that the ammonium nitrate was stored in less than ideal conditions, but Was there any more information revealed on what may have triggered specifically that explosion? Again, there are a lot of theories. Uh, The day of the blast, they were saying, you know, because it was stored with firework, that's what triggered the explosion and a bunch of other theories, but none really that have been proven to be factual. And you were beginning to tell us a little bit about the work that you do at the public source. You have compiled a publicly accessible document to try to identify all the victims of the blast. 
because the government did not recognize all of these victims. Can you talk a little bit more about that and tell us more about the project? So let me start with the project. The public source was first conceptualized in mid-2019. We were anticipating severe austerity measures. We were anticipating an economic crisis. And we wanted to create an independent publication that's able to trace the roots of a lot of these crises here in Lebanon. We often talk about they're all responsible and we complain about things, but oftentimes it's difficult for us to pinpoint who's to blame. So we wanted to create this organization that would be devoted to in-depth, long-form investigative journalism. Investigative journalism is not the only thing that we do, but this is what the publication is dedicated to. And this is the work that we've been doing over the past year and a half. The website includes a whistleblowing platform, and we've been experimenting with a bunch of different things. As for the special issue that we put out on August 4, initially, we did not intend to create a publicly accessible list with the names of all of the victims. We simply sent the Ministry of Health a simple access to information request what in the U.S. would be called a freedom of information request, asking just for the names of FOIA, asking simply for the names of the people who were killed in the blast. When we did not get a response, we started knocking on a lot of other doors, seeking this information from different government institutions, and nobody wanted to give us that information. So we decided to compile it ourselves. When you read news reports or even official documents that are coming out of the Lebanese government, Oftentimes, they'll just say over 200 people or over 204 people and occasionally over 217 people. So what we did, we compiled a lot of the lists that were already out there and we scanned media reports to get names of people who were killed and so on. And the list that we came up with was over 250 people were killed. And this is a living document that we're hoping our readers and others who are impacted by the blast would help us verify. And this list, unfortunately, kept growing even on the one-year anniversary. One person, a pharmacist who had been in a coma for for exactly a year, died on the one-year anniversary. So on the day that the list was released and during the night, we had to update it. But why is it that the government doesn't recognize everybody that actually died as a result of the explosion? This is just an assumption, but the government will eventually face lawsuits, will have to pay monetary compensation. The monetary compensation that the state is offering now is negligible especially in light of the devaluation of the currency. So I think on one hand, there's the financial component, on the other, the legal, that possibly the government does not want to subject itself to by recognizing how many people had died, or I should say how many people the Lebanese state killed. I was under the impression that people who may have not been inside the port, so maybe people who live nearby and may have died as a result were not recognized. Am I mistaken? The blast was felt almost 12 kilometers away from the epicenter of the blast at the port. Granted, about 50 or 60 people had died at the port, but a lot of people in neighborhoods surrounding the port had also perished. So it doesn't really have anything to do with the fact of people dying in the port versus outside of the port. Because the blast was so powerful and impacted neighborhoods quite removed from the area around the port. 
And the team at the public source as well documented the experiences of many people who were injured by the blast. And as with those killed, many were also not recognized by the government or not included in official lists, let's say, but many were left with permanent disabilities and a lot of physical and psychological damage that they may live with until the end of their lives Yeah, for sure. Uh, So to this day, the Ministry of Health recognizes that 150 people had permanent disabilities as a result of the blast. While we were talking to disability rights activists and other people who were injured, and in particular, the one organization that advocates for people who were permanently disabled from the Lebanese civil war and has been active over the past 20 or 30 years, we realized that that figure is also significantly higher. And their estimates is somewhere between 800 to um, 1,200 people with permanent or temporary disabilities, but the majority of them with permanent disabilities. So these are people who lost their eye, lost a leg, are no longer capable of working, are no longer independent, can't move around freely, and so on. We decided to focus on this question of disability justice because it's such an overlooked issue in Lebanon. And because of countless people who were disabled during the civil war and who continue to live on the margins of society, we kind of did not want to see that being repeated in the aftermath of the blast. We wanted to highlight the importance of advocating on behalf of people with permanent disabilities. And this is why, in particular, we focused on this issue. I wanted to also talk a little bit about the city itself. Beirut obviously is well known for it being a cultural, intellectual, a very vibrant city. What's the city like? How much of the city and obviously the port, where actually reconstructed? What does it feel like thinking about kind of the space and how it changed for people? The city itself, there is no reconstruction efforts yet. There are some private firms, including German, French, Russian, and Chinese firms, who are trying to get a contract to reconstruct the port and the neighborhoods surrounding it that were damaged by the blast, but nothing has started yet. So most of the reconstruction efforts that have happened have been in individual homes, so people whose balconies were destroyed, kitchens, bathrooms, and so on. So these have all been individual efforts, but there's nothing that's happening on the state, on the level of the state. As far as the city is concerned, for people who know Beirut, Beirut is a city that's adored by Arabs and by others. They would be shocked to see the state that Beirut is in today. It is a city that is a shell of its former self. At night, it's pitch black because there's no electricity. Traffic lights have been off for many months now. There are no street lights. A lot of businesses have shattered. There aren't a lot of people out and about on the street. Beirut has been a city, at least in which I felt safe to a certain extent, being out by myself as a woman at three o'clock in the morning. That is no longer the case. The city is becoming increasingly frightening. And the poverty rate in Lebanon right now is at 78%. For Palestinian and Syrian refugees, it's close to 90%. As I said before, rising unemployment public health sector in complete disarray. It's really quite tragic what's happened to Beirut. 
let's talk a little bit about what type of justice do people want to see, especially those mostly impacted, especially those that lost family members or who became disabled as a result of the blast? How do people articulate what they're looking to see, hopefully in the near future? It's really sad because our expectations are so low in this country. And I'm just going to refer to the families of the victims who have been on the street or on the street on the 4th of every month. They just want to know how their kids or how their family members, loved ones died. There isn't any fancy Bay Area type of transformative justice or restorative justice or so on. We're not close to even having these conversations of what this justice really looked like. We are at such a low and simple level of just wanting to know what happened, who can potentially be held accountable, even if accountability will look like a slap on the wrist, but just to know why did this event take place. Right now, this is the primary demand. And obviously, eventually, for you know, the families want the perpetrators of this obscene crime to be held to account, to go to jail, to face some kind of consequence. But I think we're so far removed from any concept of real justice or real restitution for the victims of the blast. And day after day, it seems like the investigation is not really going to go anywhere. Right now, the political class is preparing itself for the elections as if nothing has happened. Life goes on. They continue to accumulate vast amounts of wealth by exploiting these different crises. And uh, it's hard to imagine a different outcome if we don't have anything short of a real revolution that is capable of toppling the Lebanese oligarchy. This is, I think, the only thing that could potentially save this country from an even worse fate. Because even today, we know this is not the worst that's going to happen to us. In the coming months, the situation is going to deteriorate even further. And this is something that a lot of people here say that this is just the beginning. The beginning is an absolute nightmare, let alone what's going to happen in a few months. And everybody is expecting the worst. I know there were some demands, and I don't know really how much public support there is for the UN Human Rights Council to launch an investigation or work with local authorities. Do you feel like there's support for something like that for more international bodies to get involved in investigating and potentially holding those responsible to account? There are two primary actors who are pushing for international investigation. The first one is the human rights organizations, local and international, like Human Rights Watch and so on. And the second one is the kind of actor that has political motivations, political ambitions, without getting into too much detail. Personally, I feel like we should have learned our lesson from the Special Tribunal for Lebanon and The Special Tribunal for Lebanon was the one that was set up a few years after the assassination of the former Prime Minister Rafi al-Halidi. An incredible amount of money was spent on that tribunal. It didn't really go anywhere. It was a waste of time, of effort, of resources. So repeating that mistake, in my opinion, is pointless. Mm -hmm. Families of the victims do also call for an international investigation because they don't believe that a local investigation will amount to anything. And they're right. It won't amount to anything. So there are certain people, certain actors in Lebanon that would like to see an international investigation, but so far that hasn't gained any traction. Before we close, I wanted to ask you, how would you 
describe basically the situation in Lebanon in a way that goes beyond perhaps this whole rhetoric around corruption and negligence. It almost seems to me like somebody observing from outside, like this becomes almost a political choice, a deliberate policy to just preserve the political class and system. You're absolutely right. It goes much beyond just corruption, run-of-the-mill corruption that happens everywhere and not just here and even in the U.S. and in Western countries um, or just simply negligence. The roots of a lot of these crises that Lebanon is going through can be tied back to capitalism, to this neoliberal model or neoliberalism on steroids that the former, the assassinated prime minister in the early 1990s, forced on Lebanon, who built an economy that's essentially built on debt and nothing else. There are no productive sectors in Lebanon. It was just this accumulation of debt over the years that at a certain point became unsustainable. It became impossible to maintain the economy on this model. And I think a lot of these crises that we see, and we can trace also some things back to the 2015, there were large demonstrations in 2015 after there was a garbage crisis. Mm -hmm. And even at the time, and this was the first time that people were starting to realize that this is not a garbage crisis, that this is a crisis of capitalism. This is a crisis that can be traced back to the economic policies that were imposed on Lebanon in the early 1990s. So to really simplify that, I think this is ultimately what it boils down to. And Lebanon, obviously, and the global south is not the only country that's enduring the consequences of these economic policies. We're one of many. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to have any kind of links or ties of solidarity with other countries in the global south or anywhere else. It does feel like Lebanon is really isolated because it's seen or the crisis is perceived as a locally manufactured crisis that is difficult for activists and organizers outside of the country to really grapple with or to be in solidarity with the struggles that are happening here locally. But I think there is potential for people here and elsewhere to be connecting on these larger issues and on these economic policies that are wrecking havoc to all of our lives. I know I heard observers say, if you want to see the future of the world and many countries in the world under the capitalist and neoliberal system, then look no further than Lebanon, because the future, as grim as it is, may be the future that we see in many parts of the world as well, unfortunately. Yeah, I was just going to say Lebanon or maybe Chile, because back in 2019, our demonstration started on October 17. Theirs, they had this mass uprising that started on October 18. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of parallels. As far as I recall, theirs started over public transportation fare increase of maybe 30 pesos or something like that. Ours started over regressive taxation. So I, I think we can make this parallel to a lot of other countries around the world and hopefully at a certain point be able to be in true solidarity with each other to get out of this uh, calamity in a lot of ways, climate catastrophe. Uh, there are a lot of ways, there are a lot of means for our struggles to intersect. You were talking about how the everyday difficulties, you know, lack of electricity, gas, and so on, just make the everyday life very difficult for people and obviously harder for social movements to sustain themselves. 
and continue. But what do you foresee in the future, especially when it comes to social movements and movement of protests throughout the past couple of years and even before the blast? I know what we give is a pretty grim picture, but um, there's always room for hope. To be completely frank, I see no hope at all. But if you'd like for us to end on a hopeful note, I would say we've been subjected to shock after shock over the past two years, explosions, forest fires, the economic collapse, and so on. I think once the situation stabilizes to a certain extent, once people start to breathe a little bit because they can kind of acclimate to the situation, their lives regain some sort of routine, and we know what to expect and the conditions that are imposed on us, I think at a certain point, people can start to organize again. Because right now, we just have to constantly respond to these shocks. We have to constantly adjust our lives, our schedules, our way of operating, our ways of relating to each other and being with one another. I think once that settled down, and granted, once that settled down, the situation is going to be 10 times worse. But I think at, that, at, at a certain point, we'll be able to regain some of the strength that we had back in 2019 and earlier and start really organizing again. Laura Bitar is the editor-in-chief of The Public Source, a Beirut-based independent media organization dedicated to long-form and in-depth journalism in the public interest. She spoke with Mirana Bolsi. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. Mira Nabolsi is our senior producer, our media partner, is a Status Hour podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Vomina underscore radio or listen to our past shows on iTunes or SoundCloud at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. You can also reach us by email at vominaradio at gmail.com. Please join us next week for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. And thank you for listening. Thank you.